Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to the I Can't Help You podcast. It has been quite a hiatus here over the past couple months. We're uh, in the process of switching studios. We kind of took a break over the summer, but we're glad to be back with you. Today is August 30th, August 30th, and um, I'm super delighted because actually a good friend of mine and somebody that I've been in interesting conversations with and has actually listened to the show and given me great feedback on the show. I'm going to give her good feedback on her performance on the show. Um, Emily Quickle is here, and um, we're not going to read a bio. Normally we do that, but my, my friend Emily is going to tell us a little bit about her background and kind of what brings her here today. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Tell me a little bit about, uh, so we're in sort of similar worlds. Yes. I've had a chance to, you know, um, full disclosure here, we've, we're music fans, right? Yes. And are you kind of out as a fish fan? Is that yes. Something? Oh, yeah. yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. So some people aren't, like Pete got mad at me one time when Brooke said stuff about fish. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we're both big fish fans. We like the band Fish. We met at a fish show. Well, I met her and her husband, Brent. and At Wrigley, right? I think it was at Wrigley the first time we met. Yeah, the same year the Cubs won the World Series, yeah. actually. So we danced, Go the, Cubs. We danced the ghosts right out <laughs> of the We're also building. both from Chicago. Both from Chicago. So a lot, <laughs> lot in common and, and care about people. And we both love to dance. Mm-hmm. Emily's my dance partner at shows. We go to the shows with people who... Who like to move but don't necessarily like to dance. We get down, right? Right. So it's a lot of fun. So, um, you know, we started talking about different things that we're both interested in. We thought, oh, we should really do a podcast. So thanks for being willing to come on. Absolutely. And Emily's in Colorado because Fish is playing their annual Labor Day Dick shows here. And we're super Dick, Dick's, if, for those of you who don't know, it's a sporting goods uh, company, but it's the name of the field is named after Dick's. And there's all sorts of very juvenile jokes about it, as you can imagine. But um, welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell me a little bit, how did you get into this work? How did you get into the world of psychology and working with people? Tell me a little bit about what led you to this moment. So uh, I started my college career at NYU and NYU has really cool like avant-garde kind of programs. And so my, uh, my major, when I was a sophomore in college, I could sort of create my own major. And so it was psychology, philosophy, religion, and interior design. Oh, and interior design. Yes. Awesome. And 19-year-old me was going to feng shui people's houses yeah. and then do like reintegrative psychotherapy to help them like reacclimate to their new space yeah. and have the best life that they yeah. could have there. Actually sounds very cool. Yeah. Not necessarily a niche market yet, but <laughs> right. could be. So uh, then I transferred to UNC Wilmington okay. and they did not have a feng shui, philosophy, religion, psychology major. Surprise, shocker. Um, So I had to sort of pick one. And I just practically, I had the most credits in psychology. It was something I enjoyed, I was good at. So I just decided to major in psychology. Um, Ended up going to the master's program there, got my master's in clinical psych, and then got my PhD in clinical health psychology at UNC Charlotte. so it's been a pretty kind of straightforward, I mean, other than that little like brief <laughs> hiccup where I thought I was going to do feng shui, it's been a pretty straightforward path for me. And it's been really um, uh, serendipitous in a lot of ways. Like it just sort of chose me, I think. Nice. nice. Yeah. And um, what, what kind of area of psychology are you most interested in? So I think, I think I need to start saying I'm a generalist because I I used to say, oh, I do this and this and this and this. And I kind of realized, I think that makes me a generalist. Mm. Um, but so I, I have sort of research and clinical er interests in a couple of big areas. So one is legal psychology. So I did my clinical internship at a prison, uh, with the Wisconsin department of corrections at a couple of prisons. 
Um, so clinically, and then I also researched legal decision-making. So right now, uh, my colleague Dave Zimmerman and I are just finishing up uh, a study about kind of racial differences in plea decision-making and like what factors people use to choose whether or not they're going to take a plea versus go to trial. Interesting. Um, so that's kind of one camp of things I do. And then I have another camp that's sort of mindfulness. So um, the type of therapy I do is acceptance and commitment therapy and dialectical behavior therapy, which are both really mindfulness-based. Um, and then I research, do some research around mindfulness as well. And then I'm also really into, um, you know, sort of showing up for the LGBTQ community. And so I have some research and clinical interests there as well, working with that population. What was, what was it like working in the jails in Wisconsin? I'm super curious about yeah. that. Like what, what did that work entail? Did you actually see people individually and do groups and things yeah. like that? Yeah, so oh, I was working in a medium security men's prison um, and it was a specialized dual diagnosis unit. So it was a 10 month residential treatment program that was housed in the prison. Um, and it was, so it was severe mental illness, substance abuse, and then criminal thinking were like the three prongs of our program. And then I worked in a, the maximum security women's prison, the only women's prison in the state. Um, and I did mostly DBT there. Mm -hmm. um, but I also did a lot of assessment and a lot of individual therapy throughout all that, ran a lot of groups. What was the level places. of resistance like there? Was it, was it intense or was it? So I think I got fortunate mm -hmm. in a couple of ways. So one is I think Wisconsin is pretty progressive as a state in terms of like its treatment of uh, inmates and thinking about rehabilitation mm -hmm. versus just yeah, punitive. And, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like the programming mm -hmm. is pretty advanced there compared, I think, to other states. I also was surrounded by just amazing staff and other clinicians that kind of knew what they were doing and knew how to get buy-in and knew how to get people excited about staff. Mm -hmm. And then third, both of the programs that I participated in, I think were really selective. So they weren't available to everybody. Mm. And so they were competitive programs and people were pretty motivated to attend them because they look really good for you. They're mm. good for probation, parole decisions. Mm. Shows buy-in in your own sort of recovery and treatment. And exactly. All that. Mm. And so I think there's some kind of external motivation to participate. Mm -hmm. And then the job, like our job then is once they're in the door for that reason to get them sure. internally motivated sure. to, to participate. What's the weirdest thing that happened when you were working in, a, in the jails? Oh my gosh. Um, that's a great question. I don't know if it's weird so mm. much as, um, I think for me, just the environment itself was such a huge culture shock. Um, so just, you know, I mean, the first time you walk in and like the doors lock behind you, it's kind of this wake up call of like, like oh shit, like well, this is where we are, right? Yeah. Um, Ears get hot, adrenaline gets <laughs> going, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of bizarre behaviors. So there's a lot of uh, severe mental illness. So a lot of strange, you know, delusions, hallucinations, mm -hmm. things that are happening. Mm -hmm. People are sort of saying weird things, doing weird things. Um, but for the most part, those folks are not the ones that are like on the unit participating in treatment. Like if you're that unwell that you're doing those sorts of things, you're probably off in a different unit. Right. Like I didn't have as much contact with right. those folks. Right. So, um, yeah, it actually, I think the most surprising thing about it was that it wasn't as like bizarre it's just people, and scary. People behind bars. It was just people. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that was really my huge takeaway was like, yeah. oh, we have so much more in common mm. than we don't. Yeah. Right? right. And 
compared to other clients I saw in the community, like you have so much more in common with them than you don't. And I know just through our conversations, you're somebody who's super aware of privilege and, mm. and uh, I try to the be. discrepancy. <laughs> right. Well, as white people, we, we are privileged, I mean, mm -hmm. to a degree, and we've had opportunities oh, yeah. that a lot of people don't have, and are hopefully putting that to good use. Did you see, what was sort of your takeaway working in the, in the prison system? Was there a big discrepancy between people of color, for example, mm -hmm. and you know, what, what was that? I'm curious about that. And then the second part is what I'm really curious about the difference in the gender. What was like the difference in working in both yeah, yeah. genders? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So I think that, I mean, Wisconsin in general, and I, I might, I'm probably not going to get these statistics exactly right, but the, the racial breakdown of Wisconsin, I think is like about 7% black people. Mm. Um, and maybe another five or 6% sort of other people of color, mm -hmm. predominantly white. Mm. In the prison, it's about 50 50. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so you could really see yeah. the, the disparities yeah. and really see how those were sort of integrated into the entire criminal justice process from mm. like arrest all the way through incarceration. Mm. Um, so, yeah, and I think that, you know, when people would tell their stories about how they came to be incarcerated, it was really clear to me some of those differences mm. around, um, yeah, around racial privilege mm. and some of the things that they were talking about, like, wouldn't have happened if they were white mm -hmm. so or had that, access to maybe different legal counsel or exactly else in a situation exactly so, yeah. what about gender i'm curious what that was like were they were they um, parallel units that you were working on one was the female unit one was the male you said or did so I there were two separate prisons oh okay, mm -hmm. okay. two yeah. separate prisons so the women's prison is is interesting because it's the only women's prison in the state and so it houses like minimum through maximum security inmates. And so there's lots of moving parts because there's just a lot going on because it has to be one place that does everything. Mm. Whereas the men's prison um, was medium security. And so it was a little bit more streamlined. Um, I think it's, it's interesting. I think um, staff are more lenient mm. towards women inmates mm. than they are towards men that inmates. Was, that was noticeable. Yeah. Um, so Lenient, like how, like, like, like loosening on privileges, more smoke breaks, like what, how I'm curious. Smoke breaks. <laughs> Inmates don't get smoke oh, breaks. Oh, they don't get smoke breaks? <laughs> no. But can't you get to a level in a lot of prisons where you can smoke? No? Um, uh, maybe I'm yeah, not at those. Here goes my privilege yeah. again. Here goes my privilege again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. sorry. No, I'm going to take a little bit of, no. I'm going to take a little bit of my good time off to go have a cigarette. Right. And then I want to clock back in. Right. Right. Um, I think it's more in terms of like the interpersonal interactions. Mm. Like it was, there was more was allowed. So for example, if, um, if I was on the men's unit and one of the male, um, inmates would make a comment about my appearance, like they would get written up immediately. Like mm. if they mm. said something about how I looked, mm. whereas the women there, that was totally allowed. Like mm. we could have conversations about, you know, where we shopped and what we did and right. Cause I, I think it was seen as like, Oh, this is more relevant to them. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and not necessarily like an undesirable behavior. Mm. Um, but I think that's interesting cause that's mm -hmm. not always going to be true. And mm -hmm. so I think it was more interpersonally. Yeah. And, and tell, tell me a little bit about what does your life look like now? Like, how do you spend your days professionally now? You do a lot of different things, right? Yeah, yeah. which I love. Yeah. And it's my favorite part about my job is that it's not boring. Um, so I am a, an assistant professor of psychology at Loyola University, Maryland, which is in Baltimore. And so I teach and train mostly clinical graduate students. So we have a master's program in clinical professional counseling and then a PsyD program in clinical psychology. So I, I teach and supervise and mentor in both of those programs. Mm. Um, and 
Part of what that entails is full-on clinical supervision of therapy. So we have like an in-house clinic that serves the Baltimore community. So I supervise- Not just, not just students? No, yeah. So it's different than our counseling center. Okay, it's a community mental health clinic. Great, great. Right. As a train, almost like what the equivalent of like a training hospital would be. It's like yes. a training clinic. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And so our students who are in their second year of the DOC program see clients there for therapy. And so I supervise that work and that's really exciting. And then I have a small private practice where I see clients of my own. Mm. Um, and then I also do, as, as I talk about this, I'm like, oh, and then I do this thing too. Um, I do contract evaluations for the state. So I do juvenile competency to proceed evaluations oh, okay. for juveniles who have been um, accused of a crime and trying to see if they're um, like competent or capable to participate in their own trial. Oh, okay. That's the competency that you're looking for. Yeah. Um, what do you think, like, for your, I mean, this is a tough question, but like, what is the most pressing need in mental health right now? What do you think <laughs> when you look at it and you go, are you money, you, money, <laughs> resources, resources and, and allocation Funding. of mm-hmm. the and a different allocation of resources yeah. than what we typically get. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's so much access to care issues. Yeah. Like people just cannot get the help they need. Right. Right. No, it's really true. It's like, and, and you see it so much, and it's so completely driven along socioeconomic lines, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, because the reality is, I say this to people all the time, it's like, there is help, you know? Right. Um, we do know how to rehabilitate people. I mean, yeah. it's not a perfect science, but we have... Are you saying we know how to help people? Uh, well, um, <laughs> we, what I'm saying is, thank you, good question, <laughs> we know pretty well of how to resource people so that they can actually participate and help themselves Yeah, and um, setting the table for that. So but if you have privilege and you have access to those right. resources, um, and in some cases the ability to, you know, have a year or two of you know, ongoing clinical care and right. other pieces that we can give you a leg up, that there might be an opportunity for a level of awareness, right? you know, to be able to make different choices. I think before that it's all unconscious, right? right. So we can make some of that stuff conscious. So how do we make those things conscious? Well, we have to have access to care. Right. And then, you know, the thing that's always been really, I don't know, shocking to me in a sense is that on one hand you could say, well, yes, it's so expensive and there's limited resources and all that. And I get that. Of mm-hmm. course there is, right? Like that's the reality of situations. Right. But when you look at the amount of money we spend on the industrial, you know, prison complex, I mean, we're talking huge, huge business. And what the real issue is, in my opinion, is that incentives aren't aligned. We spend on average $50,000 a year to incarcerate people per individual. Correct. Well, you can get a lot of treatment done for 50 grand. (laughs) Right. Right? Yeah. And so, um, or or to not be simultaneously doing both and yet have this revolving door in the criminal justice system. It's just the insanity of it and the waste. Right. Has always been shocking to me. So it does, I like what you said earlier when you highlighted allocation of research. Mm -hmm. I think you you know, because that to me is the big issue. Right. You know, it's not that the resources aren't there. They actually are. It's where are they prioritized? Right. 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 Um, yeah. And it's just as an example. So even Wisconsin, that was a super, like I said, progressive state in terms of this stuff, the, the folks who weren't in designated treatment programs, like the specialized work that I was doing, mm. there was maybe like one psychologist available for every like thousand inmates. Like that's not no way. That, like, right. Like, no way. well, even in a clinic, what you have like an eight to 10, 12, maybe at the most like caseload, uh, you know, like how, so, I mean, it's almost impossible. Actually, I mean, in com- people who do full-time community mental health probably carry caseloads of about 60 to 80 people. Seeing them how often? Mm, like every other week, maybe. Aim house staff, are you listening to this right now? <laughs> um, <laughs> wow, 
Really? Yeah, I what think. What are that's the documentation what, like? What what kind of documentation do they have to provide? So that's I mean, so not our students. Like okay. again, I think we try to protect people who are in training because yeah. it's you can't do good work no, that way, right? No, right. Um, but I think just yeah, people who the community mental health who just have to like churn people through to, to stay afloat. They've got to see they somebody just and make gotta the most of that keep, forty-five minutes. Exactly. Or, you know? Yeah. Wow. Um, and I think you know having so many people on your caseload because there is access to care issues in terms of transportation and other things that might be barriers for people coming in. Mm -hmm. It's like you have to schedule 50 appointments a week because only 30 might show up, right? And right. so then, oh, okay. right? right, right. right? Yeah. Um, but that's people that you still have on your caseload that you're responsible for that you're supposed to be kind of tracking through. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot. So when you look around the world today, right? Like this is the times that we live in, mass shootings, you know, however you feel, I think I know, about the current administration. You know, um, climate change, uh, climate warming in particular. I mean, you know, like on one hand, I look at all this stuff and there's some days mm -hmm. where I go, we're fucked. Right. You know, like why am I wasting my time being yeah. positive or trying to quote, make a difference yeah. or like do this stuff. Now, it's not often, but I have days yeah. like that. I think we all do who are in the you know human mm -hmm. services profession. Do you think we're screwed? Do you think we're screwed? Like as a society, do you yeah, think yeah. it's just like, cause I've been saying, I've been thinking this lately, like yep. maybe just the whole evolution of things is that, yeah, we are going to be extinct and yep. it sucks. And that's that's the consequence of, we get on airplanes and we blow smoke into the sky and we drive cars and we do all these kinds of things. We have evolved. It's still evolution in my opinion. I, I don't, people are like, you know, save the earth. It's like, I dig that on one hand, but on the other hand, we're also kind of hypocritical, right? Because right. we take advantage of all the technology and all of the different things and my yeah. Amazon package is arriving later and that yeah. came on an airplane and all sorts of packaging, you know? And sure. So it's sort of like, it's still comfortable enough yeah. for human beings. And I'm talking in a very general privileged <laughs> term here right now. Yeah. When I say comfortable enough, I just mean like, you know, the vast majority of people have cell phones. The vast right. majority of people have access to information, have some, some... I don't know. I'm, I've just been struggling with this lately. It's like, are we in the process of kind of just doing sort of hopeless work? Like it's going to be at the end of the day, we're all screwed anyway. So mm -hmm. what difference does it make? Do you ever have thoughts like that? So I, it's so funny. I actually had this conversation with somebody the other day. So yeah, I mean, yes, I think we might be screwed as yeah. a civilization. Right. I think the question is like, when are we screwed? Right. right. And so is it five years? Right. Is it 50 years? Is it 500 years? Right. Like who knows? And so I think for me, and this is, you know, I have this lens as like an unrelenting optimist. Um, I have always been this way. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's really difficult for me to have like those kind of fatalistic sorts Hopeless. of, yeah. yeah. Like I just, I'm just not wired that way. Good. Uh, <laughs> Good because we need people. Yeah. Like you. Um, but I, so I think for me, it's like, if we are screwed, that makes it even more important to do this work, right? Because it's like, let's get as much joy and as much love and as much peace as we can, because who knows how much longer we can have that, right? Mm. And we can do that. So for me, like what might have other people kind of give up or throw their hands in the air, like has me double down on the work, right? Because mm. it's like, this is now even more important that we're doing this. Mm. So, mm. yeah. Do you have any regrets about the path you've taken? Zero. Zero. So you feel like you're in the right place? Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. how much of that was conscious decisions and how much of it was falling into something? It was almost exclusively falling into something. Isn't that weird? <laughs> I try to communicate that to you because I, you know, you know, I have kids who are in college now and, you know, and, and, and I work with young adults, obviously. And 
I'm constantly sort of trying to say it's like point your compass in the direction mm -hmm. and go that way. And then what you see along that yeah. path will inform you as to what the next indicated thing is. But yeah. seldom do I hear people doing great things in the world and like uh, really participating and feel fulfilled in what they're doing, what their vocation is. And say at the same time, oh yeah, in a sandbox at three years old, I knew I was going to do right. this, right? Or like, I, this is exactly according to, yeah. like you said, feng shui slash, yeah. you started this bright eyed, really, yeah. right? you know, super optimistic. I can do all things. I have this big bandwidth. Yep. I'm going to incorporate all of them into something. Yeah. And then you go, all right, well, there's Which, some limitations. I still love that problem, but there's some limitations in the world. Here's where I fit in, right? right. Here's where I can do. Right. Um, what were you going to say? Gonna well, say. I was going to say, which is also a privileged point worldview, right? Like the fact that as a 19 year old, I thought I could do anything I wanted to oh, do. Oh, hundred percent. Right. We were, we were, we were actually born into that. Yes. Right? And then, then some messages, at least in our, in, the, in yeah. our, you know, privileged communities of yes. like, you can be anything you, you want anything if you're willing you want. to work hard. Yep. Um, and that actually is probably true for some of us and it's not true for all of us. <laughs> right. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I, there's a lot of things I couldn't do right. no matter how hard I worked. Right. So, right. right. Um, you know, I like to talk about millennials on the show. Are you a yeah. millennial? So I think I, they keep changing the classification. Right, right, so right. I was born in 83. Yeah. So I'm kind of right on, I'm in cost. that like middle, that weird, because so for a while they were talking about a micro generation that was in between the two, right, right, right. which I think would be me. Like Y or something, generation Y or I don't, Z or something. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, whatever. So, yeah. Um, I love millennials. Yeah, I do too. I, I think they get a really bad reputation. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> and there and there are certain things like with any generation that they have their quirkiness, right? Like the boomers sure. have quirkiness, the Xers definitely have weird quirkiness, especially around things like commitment. And, yeah. You know, other things. And but the millennials, what I what I do feel like is that and again, we're so generalizing here. Yes. And there's all different people. But it, it there's this sort of like um, big perspective calling bullshit what it is. Yep. Um, but then the, 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 the thing that comes up for all of us is, okay, bullshit as it is, I don't like the system, I don't like this, how am I going to participate in the world? How am sure. I going to participate? How do I bring that view? How do I bring that? And I think it's going to be interesting as, as millennials kind of become, well, as, there, as there's a generation behind millennials, mm -hmm. kind of what happens um, to the worldview, I mean, again, worldview of millennials, that's ridiculous. But you know what I'm right. saying, this sort of idea that... I'm just curious of how it's going to unfold, you know, yeah. and how, how it will become different and, and, and what ultimately generations kind of become known for. Right. You know? It's kind right. of an interesting thought. Well, and I think earlier when you asked, like, what the biggest crisis we're facing in mental health is, I think another answer to that, besides money, is um, emotional vulnerability. Like, I don't think we know how to be vulnerable with each other. As humans. As humans. Mm. And I think, that's, I think that spans across generations. Mm. But I see it a lot with, um, like, my graduate students, my college kids, like, the, the people who are sort of in that millennial generation, mm. where maybe some of the skills needed to, like, develop deep, meaningful relationships were lost due to technology being a barrier to that, right? Mm. Um, and I see it in myself, too. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I struggle with mm. emotional vulnerability, too. Mm. And so I think that is something that, as a field, we need to really pay close attention to, mm -hmm. is, like, how can we help people stay connected mm -hmm. to each other mm -hmm. and how important that is? Mm -hmm. What do you think about these cell phones? Do you think that they're kind of, like... I don't know, again, here's another broad generalization. I'm like, no wonder everybody's anxious. They're like constantly looking on this thing as a feedback loop that's not necessarily an authentic feedback loop. Right. That you 
your brain, like drugs or something, you feel like you're connected. Right. But it's like a temporary sort of serotonin hit based on a like on a what, right? Yeah. Like, what do you think? Do you think that these things are messing us up or not? Oh, yes. <laughs> I think it could go both ways, right? right. I think that, um, so, okay, so a lot of the work I do, clinical work I do, is really thinking about how we can show up to our lives in a more values consistent way. Like, that's the bottom line, right? And so what does that look like for people? And I, I think that with phones, I think there are values consistent ways that we can use this technology in our lives, right? So it's not about like, is the phone good or bad? It's about how can I use it in a way that keeps me connected to my values, that doesn't get in the way, that's not a barrier for me. And so I think what that looks like is gonna look different for everybody. But I think it's about trying to do things more intentionally, mm. right? And more mm. purposefully. Mm -hmm. And so I think that w when the phones become the biggest problem is when we're just mindlessly like scrolling, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. it's, we're not thoughtful about how we're using them. And also for children, you know, especially, they're already in a place developmentally where like they're constantly comparing themselves to their peers, constantly comparing like, sure. not just with looks, but everything, right? Grades and sports and dating and who's hanging out with how many people. Well, I mean, it used to be you wondered, right. <laughs> you know, right. like I would wonder, hey, I wonder right. what my friends are, I call them, they're not home, okay, whatever. Sure. So on to the next thing or like find something to do. Now it's like possible for a kid to like yeah. sit home, like never go out and then have this like FOMO constantly of what's right. going on, which may or may not even be real, right? right. Like it's just based upon. So, and, yeah. and also I see kids like in restaurants with iPads and stuff. Right. And like the, the, my bigger concern, it's not so much about the connection with phones because I think it can cut both ways. Like right. you said, I think we're seeing, you know, revolution in places like China and other places, people are starting to really gather and communicate with one another in ways that would not have been possible without social media. Right. Would not. So again, it's a tool. How, mm -hmm. how the tools get used can be, you know, a hammer can smash somebody in the head or it can build a house. Right. right. So it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. I like that. So, and I think <laughs> phones are very, very similar. It can be a way to connect us deeper or it can be a way to really to, to separate out. I'm just curious what it's doing to the brain. I'm really oh, curious, sure. you know, how, how that's playing out, but I guess we'll, we'll, we'll see as time goes on. Um, all right, besides money, what are the other concerns you have? What are, what are some of the other things going on in psychology? What are you seeing in your clinics? Hmm. When students are coming in and presenting, what are they, a lot of anxiety? A lot of, a lot of anxiety, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, I think it depends on what setting you're working in, certainly. Um, but I think private practice and community mental health is predominantly anxiety at this point. Mm. Um, do you work with in your private practice? Are, mm -hmm. are they mostly young adults? Or are they all ages? Or um, So they are almost exclusively adults. Uh -huh. um, I'll see like high-functioning adolescents, but I don't do kids at all, yeah. um, which is... Uh, not because I don't like kids, but because yeah. I find parents really difficult to deal with. Oh, no yeah. offense. <laughs> no, I, that's what I do for a living. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, almost exclusively adults, but they really do range. I mean, I have clients that are in their sixties and I have clients that are, uh, you know, 20. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. What, uh, so, so you're a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Why do we like fish so much? Why hmm. do we, why did you travel here? You traveled, what, a couple, you know, you got on an airplane yesterday, yep. you took some vacation time, I'm assuming, you know, you, you're here. I flew yep. out to Baltimore and hung out with you guys earlier this summer. We do this all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I never really asked the question to somebody else, like, yeah. why do you think we do this? What is it about fish? What is it about that environment that yeah. we go to great lengths to enjoy? 
That's a great question. Um, I think we should study this. Right? <laughs> Maybe we can get funding for some of our well, trips. It's kind of like subtribalism no. or something. Um, like... I, I think that... I think, again, for me, I think it comes down to connection. Like, so I feel connected to this music and to this community in ways that I don't feel connected to anything else. Mm. Um, and so, and it's my husband, Brent, like often will, you know, sort of refer to fish as sort of like our version of like church, right? Mm. Like it's where we go to get like rejuvenated, restored, spiritual connection. spiritual connection. And I think that's a thousand percent accurate. I agree. I've said that to people too, that like, it's like, for me, this is my retreat. Yes. Like I go on retreat, yeah. I dance, my body yeah. gets some healing. Like it's yes. all, and, and, but it, but explaining it beyond that, then sometimes I'm at an airport waiting to catch a flight to go see the band or meet up with you guys someplace. And I'm like, why am I doing this again? Yeah. And then when I'm there, I don't question it at all. I know exactly why I'm right. doing it. But then when I'm in my regular life, I'm like, yeah. wow. Or when you're having to shell, shell out a bunch of money. Shell to, out a bunch of money. You know, you're like, like explain to your kids that yeah. you're not going to be around for a couple of days. Like, right. you know, it would be easy to say I'm going to a yoga retreat. Right. It would be easy to say <laughs> it's I'm much going more to, socially acceptable. Yeah. But no, I'm going to see a band and I'm a 52 year old man. Yeah. You know, 51. Am I 51? 51. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think, you know, it, this idea of like the combination of like, it soothes your body, it soothes your mind, it soothes your soul, right? Like right. it kind of does hit all those, those places. And it, I'm someone who's like internal dialogue is pretty active all the time. And it's, that is a place where I can pretty much turn that off Yeah, and I don't have to try. It's not, I don't know why I can do it there. It's not conscious. It yeah. probably has something to do though with like the movement and the dancing, the mm you know, it stimulates, it's visually stimulating auditory, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. and so it's, it is a space where I get a break mm -hmm. from like mm -hmm. what it's like to be inside my own mind all yeah. the time. That's a great one. Maybe that's it. It's almost like this transcendent space for us, even for a period of time. And then we share it with yeah. people that we like. And right. then, so that connection deepens and yeah. grows. And, and I'm on relationships of fish, like you guys, Brandt, you know, it's Pete, you know, our, our whole crew. I, the connection is, um, I mean, I guess most are, but it's beyond verbal. Like, like, yeah. like I felt connected to you all before I actually talked to you because of our enjoyment yeah. of the music. Like right. you and I in particular, yes. we became friends through dance. Yes. Right. And yep. how cool it is. You know, yeah. that like, oh wow. Like somebody else really wants to like dance like nobody's watching. Right. You know, and that's what happens and yeah. it's fun. And so you get this like sense of like connection. That's a very different type of than the everyday life. Right. I think that's right. I wish everybody had their own. Yeah. You know, I think everybody needs their own fish, whatever yeah. that happens to be for them. Right. And it actually seems like people who um, seem, you know, pretty actualized, they, they, a lot of people, they, they do have something like that, whether it's their church, whether it's, yeah. you know, a sports team or like whatever it is, that they have this kind of connection that goes beyond the mundane, you know? Right. And I think we need, I think it's actually a need. Yeah. Again, a privileged need. Yeah. But it's a, it's a need that people have to be part of community, to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. Right. You know? Yeah, and I think that in some ways it connects to that emotional vulnerability piece. Yeah. Like there is something that is vulnerable about sort of showing up to a space exactly as you are yeah. and like being accepted for that, right? Yeah. And yeah. so I think, you know, I mean, fish is full of weird people, yeah, right? Wear capes and yeah, masks, and we so. all show up yeah. exactly as we are. Right. And, you know, maybe not in every moment, but for the most part, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's something that's really beautiful to me in mm -hmm. that. Yeah, me too. Well, obviously, here we yeah. are. Right. right. Um, 
All right, well, we should wrap soon, but I want to ask you another question. So if you won the lottery, if you won like some obscene amount of money, like a couple hundred million dollars, what are you going to do with that money? Hmm. You know, great... Besides buy a house or whatever, like decorate, like what? what... <laughs> pay off my student loans. Pay off your student yeah. loans. So you check that off, <laughs> gone, you know, yeah. everything's gone. You have no, you have no financial pressure. You okay. just have cash now. What are you going to do with it? Hmm. That's a great question. Because money's the problem. Yeah. The psychology, yeah. right? So yeah. then I, I, I like to pose that question yeah. to people. What if money wasn't the problem? What would you do with it? Yeah. So I think, you know, I am madly in love with Baltimore, which is where I live now. I've lived there for about three years. And, hey, and I yeah. kind of like it. Yeah. <laughs> actually, there, I actually, I like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, More than just murder. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, uh, one of the, so there's this, there's this woman, Erica Bridgeford, who's doing a lot of really good work in our city. And she said one time when I went to see her speak that, you know, Baltimore doesn't have a resource problem. Like, it's not that we don't have people that are doing this work. It's mm. that no one knows what the work, like what the work is or what's happening. And like, none of those resources are talking to each other. Totally. And, and true in all mental health services across the board, private, public, and as yes. far as I'm concerned, the same story, right hand doesn't know. People who work there say, I don't really know what's going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that a really cool place to allocate our resources would be some organizing group to get all those people in communications with each other. And I don't know that I have a fully fleshed out sense of what that means or what that would look like. Right. And I think it, it would need to be someone other than me, like the people who are actually people. doing yeah. the work sure. to write, to sort of to say what they need and, yeah. and what that would look like. But I do think that there's this, this need to kind of bring people together that are doing good work in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and figure out what resources they need, what funding they need, um, and put that together. So, and I see that like per, like in a local level, it's yeah, really yeah, yeah. clear to me, but yeah. I, I think that's probably then true on like a regional level, a national level, a global level. I think so. I definitely do. I mean, I think there's cultural differences in different areas where mm -hmm. you've got to be sensitive and understand that and mm -hmm. not just assume that one way that works in Des Moines will work in Tuscaloosa or something, sure. you know, but... But basically, the principles of that, I would totally agree. Yeah. Completely, you know? Yeah. Cool. Well, what are you most looking forward to this weekend? Um, not getting the plague. Not getting the plague. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, no, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking forward to dancing, really. Nice. I mean, nice. that's that's the bottom line for me. So. And for the fish fans out there, any songs you're chasing? Any uh, Anything you're really looking uh, forward to? Chasing? You know, uh, I haven't heard an Albuquerque oh, ever. Yeah. That'd be great. So that's that's kind of close enough to the southwest. It's in, in the bank. Yeah. Um, I've never heard an Amazing Grace. Okay, um, which cool. as someone that kind of grew up in the church and is now an atheist, yeah. I have a yeah. an interesting relationship with like gospel and spiritual songs where I like love them, and Absolutely. I think part of it is because I'm like I'm jealous. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I know yeah, I am. Jealous of your faith. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. like I'm jealous yeah. that you can believe in something so strongly. Yeah. Like jealous that's really of your cool. Faith would be a really good name for a book, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, so those that's those are the songs I'm chasing. I, uh, you know, I um, yeah, I just want them to to do what they do. I think Trey's been playing really well lately with the stuff he did at Lock In with yeah. Derek Trucks and yeah. um, Susan Tedeschi, like that you know, was amazing. So I just, I'm just hopeful that they, it's just good. I just want it to be good. We're going to go either way. We're going to go either way. Even if it's bad, we'll go the next night. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, and you know, bad. a bad fish show is still like better than most other things I in totally life. I totally agree. So. <laughs> um, 
thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for you. having me. It yeah. was fun. Yeah, we'll do it again sometime. I would love that. Maybe each time we do a tour stop, we'll just do these things uh, periodically. Yeah, check in. Thanks for taking the time, Emily. Emily, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, or like your website or anything like that? Not really. Not really. I mean, I have, you know, people can um, like look me up on Loyola's website. Um, you know, so my, my private practice is called Well Life um, yeah. and that's out in Maryland as well. Um, I'm on Instagram, Emily Joyce. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So doggy selfies and all. Yeah. Lots, yeah. lots of Bruno, lots of food. Lots of That's Bruno. basically what it is. So yeah, no people, we could, you can put my email up. People are welcome to, to reach out. Cool. I'd love to hear from people. Cool. Emily, we did it. We did yeah. our podcast. Thanks for coming on. Yep. Yeah. It's awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you all for tuning in. We will be back in the Made Life Studios in no time. We are refurbishing them as we speak, so we'll have a little bit of a higher quality sound next time, but probably not a higher quality guest. Thank you, Emily, for joining us. Really appreciate it. And um, thanks, as always, for tuning in, folks. We'll talk to you soon.